Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, the term child poverty. It's an emotive term. Poverty and all that entails is emotive anyway, but when you prefix it with the word child, the spectre is far worse. After all, many of us will remember our childhoods as a time of exploration and wonder, and many of us, if we're lucky enough, will watch our children going through the same fascinating stages. But for some children, growing up can be filled with fear and worry on all sorts of levels. And you have to ask, if that's your start in life, how heavily are the odds weighed against you? In recent months, we've heard the term child poverty used a lot more. One reason for this is that the Taoiseach has made the elimination of it a priority for his government. When he took over as Taoiseach last December, Leo Varadkar said, Our vision is to make Ireland the best country in which to be a child. He went on to declare that child poverty was a national emergency. Now, as we know, we deal with some emergencies well and others not so well. So let's see how this one goes. Anyway, the Taoiseach and his cabinet have a chance to make an impact on this particular emergency in the forthcoming budget. But what are we talking about when we talk about child poverty? What does it really mean? What is the, to use the the term in vogue, the lived experience of children who are in poverty? To discuss this and other aspects of the issue, I'm joined now by Maria O'Dwyer, who's National Coordinator of the Prevention and Early Intervention Network. Maria, you're very welcome. Thanks, Nick. Delighted to talk to you. Maria, first off, I suppose, what is the Prevention and Early Intervention Network? The Prevention and Intervention Network is a classic example of does what it says in the tin. It's a network of organisations um, and services that are looking at prioritising prevention and early intervention. So how do we boot out... Rather than always putting out fires, are we putting in the, the batteries and the fire alarm or the smoke alarm first? So it's, it's bringing like-minded people and organisations together to kind of leverage resources and advocate for the fact that instead of always looking to firefight, we need to think about how do we prevent um, or get in early enough when things do happen for children and families. Yeah, I like that image of the battery in, in the fire alarm, but I, I know exactly what you mean, that, that whole issue of intervention in order to ensure that the, all the problems that arise over, I suppose, over the course of a child's life in terms of, or the child's childhood, obviously, in terms of uh, issues that arise to, to, to get in early enough that those can be avoided. That, of course, that's a tough one, Maria, politically, because as always, as you know, with politicians, they want to see results in a very obvious way. And it's more difficult to explain, well, if you do this, 
then that will not happen. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, you know, when we're looking at government um, lifespans, we're looking at cycles of four to five years. And we're talking about prevention, early intervention being across the life course. So how do we put things in place even before children are born? Right. So prenatally and during pregnancy, and we might not see the benefits of those until they're adults. So asking government to invest in something that really isn't going to be the bells and whistles of what they can talk about they've achieved in their term of office isn't always attractive. I think that we're moving out of that space slightly, and maybe I'm optimistic about this, but I think in Ireland we've had significant learning over the last few years. So if we look at the, you know, the horrendous learnings from the, the mother and baby homes, um, and we look at the kind of collective issues that we have as a society, we're now learning that we, we, we talk about things, we address them. Do you know? So while child poverty was peripheral for so long, it's now unavoidable. It's one of those realities that looking to the past, uh, while I said there is horrendous learning, it has also helped move us into a space where I think as a country and, and nationally within government, that there is more upfront um, discussions about the kind of things that we need to talk about. Okay. And child poverty, the term, how do we define it? Yeah, I mean, do you know, this one make is always interesting because when you put statistics behind it, right? So if I was to say to you that there's um, today in Ireland, there's nearly 90,000 children living in, in consistent poverty, right? We can't, like that's a big statistic and it's a big number of children and we can't really visualise what that looks like. The Children's Rights Alliance did a really nice piece of work in um, ending child poverty week a couple of weeks back where they said, right, there's 236,000 children experiencing poverty in Ireland currently, right? So it's poverty is affecting um, different aspects of their lives. You know, again, that's hard to imagine, but that's Kilkenny and Waterford combined. So if we were to think about, like, if we look at the country nationally, that's what, so that's just the, the statistics if you give. If we're talking about what poverty actually means, I mean, at a basic level, you know, we say that people are living in poverty when their income and resources means that they can't enjoy the same standard of living that we'd think is acceptable in, in Ireland, right? But again, what does that tell us? Not a whole lot. Child poverty is slightly different because children are, you know, you, you don't want to always use the word victims. They're victim of circumstance in terms of it's beyond their control. So when in Ireland we talk about children living in poverty and for the 90,000 that I referenced that are living in consistent poverty, it means two things. It means that they're living in households that are at risk of poverty. When we say at risk of poverty, it means that that they're at risk of their household income falling below 60% of median income, right? So in Ireland, our median income per household is, is 55,000. So families were 60% falling short of that. So that, that's one side of it. The second part of our definition of child poverty and what we use in Ireland is that we have deprivation scale, an index, right? So we talk about like meeting basic needs. That um, index is an interesting one, actually. It's the one that the ESRI uh, developed and used. It's when we're asked questions like, do children and do families have access to things like two pairs of um, sturdy shoes, uh, waterproof coats? Do they have a roast once a week? Can they keep their home adequately warm? So we use these indicators and if two or more of those, if, if families aren't achieving two or more of those and they're at risk of poverty, that's how we define they're living in consistent poverty. The, the issue with those kind of definitions is 
we apply those in our minds to certain images, right? So if I talk to you about child poverty, I would imagine, right, so say, for example, I grew up in, in 80s Ireland. Um, for me, child poverty was the child in the front of the choker box. It was the other, it was the kind of what we contributed to abroad. It was a very obvious definition of poverty based on hunger um, and, and, and horrific suffering and, and starvation. Then in the 90s, we kind of saw a move at home where child poverty was starting to, I mean, it had always been there, but now we had Celtic Tiger things, well, pre-Celtic Tiger, but in the build-up to an economy doing well, you know, we saw ads of, if you take, for example, the Bernardos ads, that was your image of child poverty, you know, kind of cold, dark, abused, forgotten. And that was the the image of poverty. We now know, though, that, that child poverty looks very different. Like we do have areas of very high disadvantage where we absolutely know that that that, that consistent poverty is the reality for children every day. But we also have a lot of hidden child poverty in middle class families and areas in rural pockets and among our already vulnerable groups like children in direct provision, traveller children, children experiencing homelessness. So while before child poverty was quite easy to pick out and we all had an image in our heads, it's now very prevalent and very hard to decipher in wider population. Okay, and you mentioned a few areas there, Maria, uh, direct provision and and some pockets of deprivation. In general, uh, where else would you find uh, children that are likely to be in poverty? Generally, we, we know that we have areas of high socioeconomic disadvantage. And I mean, we know what the kind of the usual hallmarks for those areas are. There'd be high welfare dependency, higher rates of crime, lower educational attainment, um, issues, issues accessing services. And, and we, we know what those communities are and we pump an incredible amount of necessary resources into those as we should do. Um, you know, if you look at kind of our learning nationally, so when you have areas like that of, of high levels of socioeconomic disadvantage um, and you have the other issues like um, uh, antisocial behaviour and the other kind of hallmarks that come with it, we, and rightly, governments looked at, in, in, you know, how do, we, how do we address this at the child level? So while we've always done work with families, we, we kind of 10, 15 years ago started to look at drilling down into the child level. So for those areas, the introduction of DESH schools and DESH banded schools, they would be those schools. So DESH is just delivering equality of opportunity in schools where additional resources are put in in recognition that these are areas of high disadvantage. And what you start to see in those schools that can offer breakfast clubs and maybe homework clubs afterwards is that the school and the, the services that satellite around the school, the likes of Bernardo's Family Resource Centres, community development projects, they're all starting to add in pieces to address the, the kind of the, the issues that emerge from child poverty. So we know that a lot of children go to school with no breakfast. So if school can provide some of that, um, and we know that some children may be going home to chaotic chaotic circumstances at home where homework, you know, might there mightn't be a safe place or, or support with homework. There mightn't be a dinner in the evening. Homework clubs can help with that as well. I suppose the issue with that is we need to make sure that when we're addressing child poverty, we're not disempowering parents. So if you look at areas of high deprivation, say, for example, I'm talking to you now and I'm looking at my office window. I'm in the south side of Limerick in an area of high disadvantage, um, South Hill. If you were to apply all of the kind of supports for child poverty that, 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 that are available and that you'd like to, to be able to provide, we also risk disempowering parents. We could be in a situation where a child leaves their house at 7.30 in the morning maybe to go to school, has breakfast there, has a day at school and has dinner and homework support. But then where does that leave the parents? 
So it's that fine line. And I think that's going to be the issue with, with the new Child Poverty and Wellbeing National Office and the work they want to do is how do we balance supporting and empowering parents with addressing child poverty? Because we can't pull children out of poverty independent of their parents and their families, you know. Absolutely. And it just it just occurs to me now when you talk about 90,000 children in consistent poverty, another image to show how many that is, of course, would be you'd be overflowing in Croke Park, which, you know, when you consider that full of children who, um, who are in that scenario, it's a stark kind of an image. When you mention the parental aspect, Maria, I mean, would it be fair to say that a certain cohort of children in poverty, it's down largely to economic circumstances and another cohort is down to perhaps chaotic situations like addiction and that sort of thing at home. Are those very different in terms of how you address them? No, I mean... They are different, but completely interrelated. So we've different types of poverty, like we've situational poverty. We saw a lot of this post-COVID, um, where maybe two income earners in the house, one lost a job, maybe both, and there was a plunge into a very different financial circumstance and there was situational poverty. And a lot of those families, while it's very difficult, can alleviate or start to climb out of it because they might have social networks and supports that enable that. But when we're dealing with things like generational poverty, where again in in, in areas where there's high concentration of, of um, poverty, both um, global and child poverty, it's the, the intergenerational cycles and the kind of inherited chaos or response to the issues from poverty um, and how they arise, whether that's, you know, um, substance misuse, domestic violence, the different kind of facets of, of, of poverty that you're dealing with. And then we have, you know, we have urban poverty, rural poverty, you know, um, I was involved in some research a couple of years back around hampers that went out to families at, at Christmas, you know, food parcels. And really surprising in the kind of research that we followed up on was the highest concentration or the highest uptake was in rural farming families. And when we dug a little bit deeper, the majority of those families had sent children to college. And in order to do that, they had either remortgaged or taken out extensive loans. So to enable children to go to college, they were like living at a consistent poverty level themselves which meant that any younger children in the house were also suffering that. Now, that's not something we think of when we think of poverty. So it's just an example of those pockets, do you know? Absolutely. And then the things in terms of, you know, obviously there, there are effects of poverty by adults or children or whatever, but are there particular psychological impacts for children who, in those circumstances, I mean, for instance, would it be very obvious in school and in their social networks and w w would that be an issue that would arise for them? It would indeed. Like we are, we often tend to think of poverty for, for children in particular, right? So if you look at areas of um, high relative deprivation and people would always ask the question, well, those children are always dressed in branded gear and tracksuits and they have the best of stuff and you'd never know that they didn't have. And that's because we don't fully understand relative deprivation. Do you know that? Um, I always give the example of, again, here in the South Side at Christmas, say a couple of Christmases ago, children, quad bikes were really popular gifts to give children. And, you know, local narration on it in terms of, of, of media and kind of social commentary was like, look at this, they can't afford to feed their children, but they're buying quad bikes, right? And, and this was the, the kind of story you heard. But what nobody saw was, you know, come January when loan sharks 
were back looking for, for the money that paid for those quad bikes. You had families under immense pressure and you had children in houses where there was high levels of stress, financial worry, possible substance abuse, all of the things that come from that kind of high pressure that those families are constantly living in. So in a way, the stuff the children have, be it the fancy gear or, or, or the clothes or whatever, don't tell the story. They're not that easy to decipher. But in, in terms of your question, what is easy to very much pick out in schools would be the children who are falling behind because there isn't support there. Maybe, you know, if there's a certain level of, of chaos or issues at home, they're not making appointments there, you know, maybe for speech and language or occupational therapy, the kind of things that help their development. Maybe there isn't a secure place to do homework or a parent available or who has the literacy themselves to help with the homework. And all of these little indicators, I mean, they're not little by any means for, for the child experiencing them. But cumulatively, when we add them up, you start very easily to see um, the effects of poverty in school. And there is a difference between children, you know, those who are thriving and, and those who are surviving. And that's that line that poverty introduces for children. And that's what I'm saying in terms of their peers. Is it something that becomes obvious or because, for example, a lot would be in areas of high social deprivation it mightn't be that obvious but I'm just wondering about psychologically that interaction with peers can that have a really negative effect yeah, it absolutely can. I mean, children are very aware of what they have and what they don't have. You know, we know that their socio-emotional development is all about comparison. We all do it as humans. So when you have children, um, like what I often think is striking is if you're doing focus groups. So as a researcher, I do a lot of focus groups with children um, and the norms that children have and how they discuss those. So you'll have eight-year-olds who won't understand the value of money. Generally, in a middle-class household, they won't have been privy to discussions about money and they might get a certain allowance every week. And that's as much as they know about money. An eight-year-old from another area where there's a lot of disadvantage and child poverty is fairly entrenched can tell you all about loan sharks, education or uh, community welfare officers, loans. And they're, they're privy to information that really isn't age appropriate for them. But that's their lived reality. They're in households where they're the stressors. That's their parents' reality. So for them... There, I always think for children who experience poverty, their street smarts are way ahead of where they need to be or should be for their age. Right. And is there particular age groups within childhood where they're more likely to be living in poverty and why? Well, we know that middle childhood really is a high risk of poverty. So we say middle childhood, it's it's kind of the seven to pre-adolescence. Um, they can be quite a forgotten about group because we put a lot of resources into the early years, um, and w- which we absolutely should do. But for children of that age, they kind of straddle two worlds. They're out of services where they're having regular developmental checkups. So, you know, with, with the public health nurse and development checkup that stops when they start in primary school. Um, and they're not quite old enough to articulate or to self-refer or self-present. So they can be quite um, a high-risk group. We would say generally, though, that all children um, that experience poverty um, are high risk in terms of their outcomes because they all experience poverty very differently. Do you know what we're seeing now, which is a really good measure in terms of combating poverty, is the antenatal supports that we can put in. So it's really funny to talk about, and but really practical, how we address child poverty before a child is ever born. How do we equip those parents um, to support a child and to support themselves out of poverty so that Childhood poverty isn't reality for their child. We see things like home visiting services, um, public health nurses, all of that prenatal stuff that can happen before the stress of a baby ever arrives on a, a, a couple or a mom. Um, and that's when we need to start addressing child poverty.
it's at that level. And that is something that has has been done in more recent years. Absolutely. So we're getting much better at this. So even from 2015 onwards, the government funded what's now known as the ABCs, the Area-Based Childhood Programme. And that's working in 12 sites around the country where there's entrenched child poverty. And it's it's around putting in those resources. So it's working antenatally to kind of the six to eight-year-old cohort. How can those programmes support families to prepare for parenthood? How can they support them to flag concerns before they ever become really big issues? Um, like, do they understand financially how to, how to budget, how to, to run a household? Do they understand and are they supported to interact with early years practitioners and teachers in schools? Because we see that with a lot of parents. They will chat away in the earlier services. They're very comfortable. They drop their children off to, to um, earlier services or what people used to traditionally call creches. Um, and they will have very clear interactions, you know, and, and they can be signposted on from there. And we find then that children start school and that communication stops. There's a power differential with school and a kind of a hierarchy. A lot of us, to be fair to schools, is what we have in our own heads from our own childhoods. It's inherited, the kind of reluctance. Mm. But when that communication stops, it puts the child at higher risk. So say, for example, in an earlier service, a preschooler might be a little late um, talking. Right, might be or a toddler might be a little late. The earlier practitioner will have a conversation with the parent um, and maybe flag something that the parent didn't know. Like at this stage, maybe we'd be looking at and will we help you talk to the public health nurse or refer you on to speech and language? It's all of those connections are vital in terms of addressing child poverty. It's, it's, it's enough people with eyes on a child. And as the child moves through school, those eyes, there aren't as many of them. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I was going to ask you about education, first of all, in terms of the chances of um, of a child completing even, even second level education when they have that start. But just quickly into the course, we just when you were talking there, Marie, and that is, and this is the thing I think a lot of people, we don't give enough cognizance for. I mean, the kind of supports that you're talking about there that are quite obviously vital both in terms of families and specifically in terms of children and giving them a chance to break out of that they're all in the community and voluntary sector as far as I can see and it's definitely a sector the 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 work the amount of when I say hidden, I mean hidden to the general populace, maybe hidden to the media, hidden to those of us who are not living in areas of social deprivation. The amount of work that's done there is absolutely enormous. And even as we see there in terms of there, there, there's um, in one area, there's going to be um, a day of industrial action later this month um, around the number of voluntary and community sector areas. But it's just immeasurable the difference that that sector can make at this level of society. It absolutely is. You're, you're, you're spot on, Mick. I mean, the community and voluntary sector is essentially propping up what the government needs to be doing on a statutory basis mm. without the resources 
um, to enable them to continue to do that. So if you even take, for example, the most recent, I mean, during COVID, we saw uh, community involuntaries where the organisations that were delivering play packs to houses to ensure that children had some connectivity. Um, we know that during the Ukrainian response, um, last year, that it was the play reception in City West, that, that families came through the door and the first thing they had was a play mat for their children to play on. This is all community and voluntary. The problem we have at the moment is, so if, for us to really make twenty twenty budget 2024 a children's budget, we have to look at how the resources are allocated out. So when we ask for additional money for TUSLA, um, because, you know, in terms of family support and child protection, that money is critical. A certain amount of that has to be ring-fenced for community and voluntary partners because those partners are either through commissioning or through service level agreements are doing the work of that statutory body. And in order to retain and to recruit and retain staff, that funding needs to be earmarked. And that's the issue. A lot of the community and voluntaries are working on really kind of annual funding. So we can offer this as long as we have this funding. So we might be visiting your home and it's all great, but actually if the funding stops on the 31st of December, we can't visit. And that for us is a really dire situation in terms of child poverty, that kind of precarious balance. Yeah, and I, and the other thing that strikes me about it is, is the connections that are possible, particularly when you're dealing, especially in areas of social deprivation, when you're dealing in anywhere there's kind of chaotic lives or issues around substance abuse or whatever, the fact that it's it, that it's community focused rather than state focused whereas the, the, there's negative aspects there in terms of the way funding and what have you then you would have within a statutory agency but the positive side of it is the connections I presume are easier to make what I wanted to ask you though Marie again sorry I because I, I diverted there from uh, what was about education and we're back again uh, presumably in terms of child poverty there is less a chance of uh, arriving at a stage of education that could be beneficial to the to the child, the youth heading towards adulthood. Yeah, there is absolutely, and and again, the old kind of explanation of that would have been that children just don't attain academically because they're not supported to do so. We now know that there are supports in place that have definitely improved the outcomes uh, for children in terms of educational attainment. But what's different, and we have to remember, which is why I think it's really interesting that the new unit is called Child Poverty and Wellbeing. Child wellbeing includes, um, you know, it, it, it's health, education, um, but it's also confidence and happiness, right? So for a child to achieve education-wise, they have to believe that they can do it. They have to be confident that they deserve it. So a lot of it is about instilling in children the, the actual structural ability to do it, which is come to school, have homework clubs, you know, do additional supported work, all of which is really important, additional language classes, whatever it takes. But the other part is for us at a society level and at a wider level is to reiterate constantly that message to children that they can be anything they want to be and that your address doesn't determine that. And to date, that's what we haven't been good at doing. Like we make a big show of access programmes in universities and while they're all exceptionally necessary, we still have that surround sound messaging that, yes, if you come from an area and you, you complete a degree and you go on to master's and PhD, you can't be the standout, you know, of girl from South Hill done good. That can't be the story and that can't be your tagline. You can't continue to be the exception. It has to be the norm for these communities that we're telling children, if you want to be a doctor, you can be a doctor. And that's the well-being part with, within poverty and well-being unit that I think we really need to, to get that balance right. Sorry, when you talk about poverty and well-being, this, of course, is the unit that was set up by the Taoiseach. Yes. 
some of our listeners, in case they weren't totally across that, or I hadn't, I hadn't made it obvious. That's that, that's a particular unit and this focus that he, he's saying there's going to be on it. Now, coming to that, some of the possibilities in terms of where things might go. I'd be interested in what you think of the, I think it was the, the SRI study came out there a few weeks ago in terms of child benefit and the suggestion of a two-tiered child benefit, uh, obviously to ensure that there's greater assistance for those who are more in need of it. And the SRI did a study and I think they costed it at around £670 As a measure, Maria, what do you think of that? I think theoretically it's a really good idea because I think child benefit is the one payment that tells us that all children are valued equally. So when we have a baseline and everybody gets the same payment, it's the one thing that isn't mediated, means tested, all of those things. So in terms of a universal support and universal provision, child benefit is really important. But I think the additional layer of a two-tier system is really important, that everybody gets a base level, but for those who have additional supports and needs that they're looked after as well. Do you know, if one family uses their child benefit for you know, maybe treats for their children if they're in a a position where they can do that and it's an add-on to their income, well and good and absolutely perfectly entitled to it. But for a family where that 160 is used for for nappies, um, needs, whatever they have, there should be an extra layer that ensures that those children also have access to, to, to additional. Like what we have to remember is the face of poverty as I said, traditionally what we saw was that, you know, um you were, you know, you 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 were your housing situation was precarious um, and you looked dirty or unclean or you were hungry. And that's a very traditional image. But now we know it's much broader than that. So I'm really delighted, actually, that um, the, 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 the Child Poverty and Wellbeing Unit has addressed play, culture, sports and art as part of that as well, the arts, as do the Children's Rights Alliance every year and the Child Poverty Monitor. Like not having things for children, not having access to clubs, that's a form of poverty. Um, that all children should enjoy in childhood, but we know in areas where there's priorities around money, are you going to put food on the table or are you going to send your child to gymnastics? Do you know it's a trade-off um, that the children and families shouldn't have to make? No, just being a small bit controversial. <laughs> um, Go on. The point you make about, about the additional sports, absolutely, I couldn't agree more, but... Is there a need, if we go down that route, and I, I think it's a very positive thing indeed, but if we go down that route, well, is there a need to continue with a universal child benefit? Because let's face it, a good proportion of the population, and I haven't a clue, but I could guess you'd be talking from anything from 30 to 40, 50% of them can manage without it, I would suggest. So what's your thought on... For example, if you were to do that, that you don't even, for example, put even more in terms of that tier that w- w- would have an additional payment and, and less, if at all, in the universal element of it. I suppose what it comes down to, Mick, is how we, how we, the, the class divide in Ireland and the role that that plays in poverty, right? So we're creating the us and them constantly. So can you imagine a situation nationally where the one universal payment that goes to all parents is taken away because you're told, okay, others need it more. Well, then in terms of class, the us and them has just deepened significantly because that narrative about, you know, I go to work, what do I get? You know, 
she doesn't go to work and look at everything that she gets. And that's an ongoing dialogue and it's part of national narrative, you know, all of the time. So there's the risk of that, that that class differentiation um, becomes wider. And with that come a whole uh, other additional set of problems that we have as a society. And I think to go down that route, you know, if you look at the cost, and as you said rightly, it's quite a significant cost. But what we know with child poverty in, in governments to date is we're constantly borrowing off the next generation. Do you know, we're, we're constantly spending now and, and they'll pay for it further down the line. The teenagers today, if you were to look at the kind of average 16 and 17 year olds, we all think like they're spoiled, they've got their AirPods, they've got this, that, they've got everything. We also have to remember this is a generation that was born into a recession. Then came a global pandemic and then a cost of living crisis. So their experience of poverty and, and tightening the belts is just part of how, how they are and how they exist. So when we talk about the vision for Ireland to be the best place to be a child, we're quite a bit away from that. Do you know, and particularly for this generation of teenagers. Absolutely, we are. So there's a lot to do, um, as they say. So in that vein, Maria, you know, give me a couple of measures that you think should be prioritised and that, in your opinion, would have a significant impact. I think we have to go back to that idea of the, the antenatal supports, right? So we have to be looking at putting those in that we're funding things like the area-based childhood model to scale up and to be wider and available in rural areas and the not-so-typical areas um, that we think of when we think of child poverty. In the early years, we have an equal participation model now that the government is working on. Like the aspiration there would be that we have a national childcare scheme for those most entrenched in poverty. We we could and we can afford to remove 98% of the cost for parents. Right. So if we do that, well, then there's a significant opening up in terms of resources and income and purchasing power for those families who are paying for childcare currently. What costs would they be now, Maria, specifically, like in when you say remove 98% of the costs? So you might have families at the moment under a national childcare scheme that might be paying, say, 60 to 90 euros a week. That's heavily subsidised, but they're still paying that for their childcare costs. Yeah. I mean, if we could reduce that to 20 euros, right. we're then releasing for them significant costs in terms of weekly shops. Like we're, we're talking to parents regularly who will tell you that they run out of money. Tuesday seems to be a day ahead of payments on Thursdays and Fridays. And there's two pinch days, Tuesday and Wednesday, where they will tell you that they might be eating toasts and um, they might be eating noodles. And like, that's a very hard image to think that they're young families or young children in households for anybody where that's the reality. So 40 euros a week back into a budget for those parents is a weekly shop bridged between those points when you bring it down to those terms. I think we need to look at, you know, increasing overall funding to TUSLA because like you said, we need to resource the community and voluntaries and that has to happen through kind of TUSLA bits. There are others that we need to do. We need to ring fence money for prevention and early intervention. So you know, for us, as I said, it, it's it's not about putting out fires. You, we have to have targets that every year, how much are we going to put into prevention so we can stop generationally always fixing things. But instead, we're getting in there earlier enough. And then I think we have cohorts of people that we really need to look at, like um, those looking for carers, foster carers, kinship carers. These are doing essentially massive work in, in, in terms of rearing children without the financial or the social supports always that are needed for those. So when we talk about children's budget 2024, I think those are the type of things we need to look at. And and for me, I would love if the budget, this would kind of be my wish list for the budget, if we spoke about all of these things and then and we talk about how we support families to retain purchasing power. 
I think if the budget actually explained what child poverty is and looks like, we would have a better understanding nationally of why those measures. I think we throw out stats, we throw out figures, but we don't actually explain what does that look like. And for me, that would be the difference in this budget. I think you're absolutely right. That occurred to me, that idea of uh, it's all very well for the Taoiseach to say, and I'm sure he means it, to say that he wants to make an impact here. But uh, visualising, if you put it that way or whatever, that, that people will be able to relate to the concept and how negative an impact it can have on people's lives. That communication, uh, as I, if I'm taking up correctly, is definitely something I think that could go a long way. Just come back briefly. Another thing you said that just occurred to me, you mentioned about rural poverty and a thing that occurs to me there, uh, Maria, that like, for instance, when you have urban poverty or, or, or in cities and it has horrendous elements to it, but it, it's more easily recognisable, I would have thought, particularly when you're dealing with areas of social deprivation. And what you were speaking earlier about rural situation too, that seems to be a scenario that is much more hidden. Yeah, a lot more hidden and, and the effects of us um, equally as detrimental. So we might associate in cities and urban, you know, if we're talking about antisocial behaviour, you've got gangs and we can find the opposite in, in rural settings, a real high level of isolation and a correlated um, level and that's reflected in statistics of suicide in men 18 to 30 um, and how that peaks and is higher. So it's it's always that poverty has an impact, but where and how it's felt just depends on 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 the the geographic and and is highly dependent on the ge- geographic situation and location. Do you know? Are you hopeful for the budget? I am hopeful for the budget, right? I, I, I am, because I think we're at a critical point now. So we have seen the most horrendous of images. We have seen like a five-year-old child a few years ago eating food off the ground outside the GPO. I think that image has stuck with a lot of us in the, in the four years since we first saw it. I think that, you know, we, ha- we are no longer desensitised to the statistics that we initially heard. So if with four th- almost 4,000 children experiencing homelessness in the same time, same number of children in direct provision, they're no longer the other nameless children. They now look like us. They're possibly our children. And I think that type of reality check means that the government really, we, we have to move. So I would be hopeful. I think I'll just give you a one quick thought that I often have. You know when you hear you, you, you hear um, families are struggling with the cost of living um, and their costs are going up. Well, for poor families, they're, they're, they can't increase their spends. So they're buying less. So while we say our food basket costs more every week, uh, you know, middle class families will say, oh God, every week it's up 30 or 40 euros. Well, for poor families, that's 30 or 40 euros less in their basket. That's less food. That's, you know, that's rumbling bellies, that's stretching food, that's all of those things. I think if the government can communicate that, that that's what poverty looks like, then I think we're on to a better thing. Finally, Maria, where do we stand in developed countries, either EU or, or OECD or that kind of thing, how how do we look in that respect? I mean, it depends on the scale that you're looking at. I mean, in, in the EU in general, one in four people experiencing poverty are children. And we're completely, in, in Ireland, we're in line with that. We would say that one in nine children in Ireland go to bed hungry, but that we know that one in four experience poverty. Um, in terms of some of our other indicators, we always, in OECD terms, we always sit in the middle to you know that we're not the worst and we're not the best. And this has always been a comfortable place for Ireland. Like we're not bottom of the class. Okay, we're not the best, but we're not the bottom. And then I think in the EU, we are ranking in the top six in, t- in terms of child poverty. And I think that's one that we need to keep an eye on. 
And because as our population becomes more diverse and our issues become um, more prevalent, we're going to be pushed further and further up that scale in, in terms of child poverty levels. Maria, it's, it's enlightening and I definitely think... Um You've given us a, a, a really comprehensive picture of it, and I think in particular your idea about uh, the communication and that people will be able to understand exactly what we're talking about. The idea that one in nine children actually go to bed hungry at night in a country like this, when you look at the other scale of things, it is a frightening um it's an indictment, effectively, you know, and and uh, let's hope that the rhetoric we've seen is going to uh, is going to turn into something. And I suppose the first indication of that will be in the budget. Maria Dwyer, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thanks, Mick. Pleasure. All eyes on the budget. Okay, uh, folks, I'd also like to thank our engineer, as always, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with you soon. Take it easy. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.